Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. Commuting and podcasts are an almost inseparable affair. They go hand in hand, or rather, earbud to ear. You might even be listening to this podcast on your own commute. Today's guest is David Bissell, and he's written a book titled Transit Life, How Commuting is Transforming Our Cities. He chats to Steve Grimwade about the joys and pains of our daily journeys. But first, a poem. Overslept. So tired. If late... Get fired. Why bother? Why the pain? Just go home. Do it again. That poem, The Commuter's Lament, A Close Shave, written by Norman Culp, greets commuters in a New York subway station. It was vandalised by a couple of optimists in 2011 to read. Overexcited, energised, all smiles, time flies. Come, brother, much to gain. Just be proud. Do it again. I catch the train daily, and I think I'm an overslept kind of guy. But the contest here is telling. Why is the commute such contested territory? Do you hate yours? Or is it your psychic bridge to work? Do you work from home and commute in your slippers from the kitchen? Or are you braving Shinjuku Station or even a two-hour drive from the mountains? Joining us to chart the personal effects of a capitalist necessity is David Bissell, Associate Professor in the School of Geography at the University of Melbourne. G'day, David. How are you? Hey, I'm well. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure, and congratulations on the launch of your new book, Transit Lives, out with MIT Press. Thank you very much. That must be pretty extraordinary to be published by them. Oh, I was I was really heartened that they were willing to publish a book on something so apparently mundane and, and utterly banal. I mean, the commute is such a banal thing, um, and yet it's something that's that seems to underline what cities and modern cities are all about. And it's something that's only going to get uh, more significant as cities grow and grow in the future. So what is it about commuting that makes it such a loaded term? So I started this project a few years ago, and I was really, really overwhelmed by how the commute in popular um, prose in the media and even in in terms of policy debates is always regarded and written about in really negative, dystopic ways. The commute is something that we would rather not be doing. The commute is something that we would would do anything uh, to avoid. And so I, I went into this project thinking, well, is that really the case? Is that really the case? Or is there a much more interesting story to tell here? And I I had an inkling that that was the case, not only from my own commutes, but from uh, some of the research that I did previously on on public transport commuters, on on public transport users. So uh, so I I, I knew that there was something more going on here. Let's talk about you. What's the first journey that you remember taking? (gasps) Oh, my word. Um, well, the the formative journeys that that really, I suppose, led to this book in a very long and rambled way were journeys that I did with my grandparents um, when I was on really young and on school holidays. My parents would take us to my grandparents in in the Midlands in England, and we would go on a very very short train journey, fifteen minutes. Um, they would take us and. I was from the countryside, and so this small commuter journey was just a, a whole world of unfamiliar sights and sounds that, that that were just completely alien to me. And I was 
absolutely overawed and and it started i th what really has been a really lifelong fascination with transport and mobility uh, as you were talking then it reminded me of the way you write in the book and you you've got a very descriptive eye like you you see a lot of detail and even in your interviews which will come to you you pick out a lot of detail is that a skill that you were born with something you've you've uh, made Oh, look, I think for me, I think details are everything. And so, so much of, of not only uh, policy media, but also quite a lot of academic stuff is trying to simplify. It's trying to uh, it's trying to boil things down to their, their essences, whereas actually so much of what makes up the experience of life is subtlety, is nuance, are those things that catch us out the corner of our eyes that, that we might not realise are significant at the time, but might um, really... Uh, impact on us in all kinds of ways under the radar that only become apparent later on. So for me, detail is everything. So um, how do you commute to work now? And, and what does this say about you? I I love commuting by tram. So God, we've got a sick man. Here. <laughs> he loves it. So I moved to Melbourne a year ago and I, I was based in Canberra for eight years previously and I had a lovely bike ride to work. It was 15 minutes. It was through I mean, it was the, the, the Australian imagination or the imagination that I had when I was in England. It was through fields of cockatoos and kangaroos even sometimes. And so uh, so that's been my commute for such a long time. Then I moved to Melbourne and the idea of a tram was such a, an exciting thing. You know, we don't have trams. We didn't have trams in Canberra at that point. And so so this for me has been reacquainting myself with a, with a world of public transport and actually has given me, um, I think I've become probably more empathetic to a lot of the, my part, to the people that I talk to and write about in the book since um, since doing my own journeys here, for sure. How else has commuting changed you? Oh, it's, it's forced me to think about... Um, to think about the activities that I do on the commute. So even for the first couple of months here, I I got my phone out, as a lot of people do, and I found myself idly flicking through websites and social media and realising that actually it was completely addling my brain before getting to work. And so it forced me to think, OK, what else could I do with this 20 minutes of time uh, to actually maybe improve my well-being just a little bit? I know that sounds a bit clunky, but to make me arrive at work feeling a little bit more in tune with the world and so um i'm i'm reading novels at the moment and it's lovely even standing up it's it's lovely in the 1800s the average commute was about 50 meters or thereabouts i expect um how much has that changed in recent decades so i mean when i when i learned that statistics i was flabbergasted because it really does uh it, it really kind of jars with all of our ways that we're habituated to think about travel as being so normal. So now people move on average 50, um, 50 kilometres, I think it is, a day, and a, on average for their commutes. And um, so this obviously shows that in, in such a short space of time, historically, uh, we've we've gone we've moved from very sedentary lives where our working our our sort of daily activities and our living take place in such a uh, in such uh, close proximity to a situation where um, where we're actually moving a lot of us all the time between you know appointments with with work with things that we're doing for pleasure for all sorts of other things you know we've got much more dispersed lives. Do we define commute as being home to work? Is that important to to state outright? Oh, it's an, it's interesting the definitional question. So I when I pitched this initially to MIT and I said commute, they said, well, you know, in America, commute is is public transport, and I had to say, well, actually, from from a European perspective, uh, and from an Australian perspective, it's very much um, 
uh, it's very much the whole gamut of travel. And certainly in the academic world, the commute refers to um, the process of journeying between home and work. But it's interesting how so many of my participants actually had very different definitions. So when going to the cinema at night, for example, um, on the train, that wasn't a commute. You know, that was uh, that was uh, that was a, a trip for leisure, and yep. it comes with different expectations. So I think that's it. I think it, I think the important thing it raises is is uh, is around how we're how we're disposed to travel. So the labels are important, actually, and not just incidental. At first, I thought your book would be a high level investigation about commuting and its impacts. However, this is no macro-level view. Your work is very much at the micro-level concerning yourself with the impacts uh, that commuting has on the individual. Um, So, and this led you to do a a whole lot of interviews. Maybe you can talk about your methodology and what you did for the book. Yeah, for sure. So what I was really interested in is a lot of previous studies had decided, oh, I need to, we need to think about a particular mode of transport, or we need to think about, um, you know, long distance commuters or something like that. I was really interested, my starting point was thinking about the breadth of commuters, you know, what what's the diversity of different experiences out there. And so I put an ad in um, in the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, it seems very quaint now to put an ad in, in a newspaper uh, and MX, which was a commuting magazine. And I was really blown away by the number of responses I got. You know, people, this was something that really resonated with people and they really wanted to share their stories with me. And so I selected 53 people to talk to who traveled by uh, a range of different modes of transport, who lived in a variety of different places and who commuted different distances. And this uh, this was all in Sydney um, as my case study site. Um, and I, I did interviews with these people. And I suppose in a similar way, going back to what we were saying about detail, what I was really interested in is following each interview for for its specificity. So really trying to encourage people to draw out the detail of their commutes and, and, and what was really, really affecting them. So what are these personal stories telling you that statistical analysis and trends don't? So statistical analysis and trends can tell us certain things. They can tell us, um, they can they can give us that macro level information. Obviously, that's really important from a policy perspective when we're planning things like infrastructure developments. But what I'm what I was really interested in in, in getting was information uh, that flies beneath the radar. So how uh, how our habits changed, how our, how our dispositions change, how our sense of ourselves and each other changes you know these things uh whilst they can be shoehorned into into statistics they're not really readily available for that at all and so you need other skills and techniques at your at your disposal and so for me storytelling is a really really powerful way of uh of not only learning about other people's um the complexity of other people's lives but it's also a, a really helpful way of um of telling other people and relaying some of that complexity you know uh, and I was really struck actually when I spoke to some some of the politicians that I talked to in the in the um in the project about how stories have a a way of resonating and impacting uh that can actually be much more powerful than statistics um so you know a story of uh, uh you know something small but really poignant can cut through where a number can't. But that's when uh, the, the subjective comes in and I can select uh, the best story to, to prove my case in that regard. I think you can. Uh, I think that's obviously part of it. And there are stories everywhere 
But I think the the point is is that um, when we're advocating, when politicians are advocating for infrastructure developments, when politicians are saying we need to spend your taxpayer money on this, I think it helps to actually get a sense that um, that these are not just dreamt up by politicians. They actually have a locus, and a lot of that locus is in commuter pain. And so, ne- knowing what these experiences are doing or lack of infrastructure is doing uh, is desperately important. So the the conventional assumption is that the time we spend on uh, commuting is a waste is wasted time. Um, how does an understanding of those stories behind each commute challenge that? This has been the conventional logic for such a long time. Transport economists uh, and even transport policy. It's all about reducing the commute, reducing the length of time. And for for some really lengthy commutes, that might well be very justifiable. But what those sorts of policies overlook, and what those sorts of um, approaches overlook, is that actually. Yeah, the commute is a time where people are people are doing all kinds of things. They're working on their sense of self. They're they're engaging in activities that they wouldn't do necessarily uh, otherwise. And what I got, what I learned time and time again from talking to people, is that this was time that they really, really valued. So yes, on one hand, they bemoaned their commute. They were really frustrated that they were doing this. They would rather be doing something else. But at the same time, they were saying that they really valued that time, which I think is fascinating because it shows how. How a contradiction can actually be lived out. You know, we we live our lives in tensions and tangles of tensions and contradictions. And for me, the commute is a perfect example of that. But doesn't that show that people are willing to embrace the necessity of the commute? They, if they're given the choice, they may prefer the London of the 1800s and the 50 metre walk down the road. But they realise that if I'm going to buy a house in Cranbourne, I'm going to have to deal with a 50 minute commute and. I'm willing to accept that. So it's it's a it may not be a happy acceptance, but it's a it's a reluctant necessity. It's it's a really hard one. Um, a couple of the stories, a couple of the commuters uh, whose whose stories that really moved me were ones where they had actually decided to shorten their commutes, or 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 in one case, one woman finished her commute and 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 retrained and got a job closer to her. And she, a lot of the conversation was actually. Uh, a reflection, a really melancholic reflection of how much she missed the journey. And, you know, yes, there were aspects of her life that she was reflecting on now uh, have improved. So she wanted to spend more time with her son. But actually, she said that this was, um, I, I got a real sense of someone that was was almost kind of struggling with missing this commute. Uh, you know, she, it, it's, it, you know, she spent years trying to reduce it, retraining for a new career. And yet this is something that she looks back on. Um, Oddly, in an oddly fondly manner, and that was for me was fascinating. It's amazing because you, I mean, you do get into the lives of people and quite deep. And I don't know if it was this woman or another and her son, whereby I think they were together when you interviewed them, and it was almost that relationship and that and talking about the fact that she was missing time with her son at points that was very poignant absolutely and she she said that her her son and her father uh, and his father sorry who was still doing this very long distance commute they were not so close and she said to me you know i put that down to i put that down to the commute so the commute's not just changing us and who we are but it's also changing our relationships in really profound ways as well the melbourne uh where we're recording this talks the city of melbourne and, and politicians have spoken about the i think the 30 minute city and so they arrive at a time that they think is an acceptable commute time for anyone in the city. And that's an interesting way of approaching it, saying, well, this is the approximately what people should do. Is that a profitable way or a positive way of approaching the problem? I think when you're developing policy uh, from from a from a governance perspective, you have to come up with policies um, that have, um, you know, that have sort of 
definitive um, numbers. So, so I think that I think that thirty minutes is kind of a condensation of a whole series of things that that are talked about in the book about um, longer travel times, for example, being really uh, depletive. But of course, what those generalities miss are. Uh, are, are a whole series of exceptions, and there were people who who I spoke to that commuted for much longer and absolutely wouldn't give up that commute. I mean, one lady who's, uh, who had an incredibly long commute from the the, the central highlands of New South Wales into Sydney um, took me through her her journey uh, that starts at I think it was sort of four a.m. or so, half four, and she gets to northern Sydney, um, you know, hours later, and she was not negative at all and it it was just incredible she was speaking in such fond ways and so i think you know it's really it's it's obviously it's great that 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 um that transport policy is being developed that's really attuned to um people's pain and suffering and and kind of discomforts but at the same time there's such diversity there and i think that's what my book is trying to really get at did you hope to uncover anything particular and were those hopes met or did did you get were you surprised? Every interview was a surprise. And I know that sounds really sort of um, slushy and cliched ridden, and it kind of is. But um, it's funny, when I've been asked about the book before, one of the questions that, that that I've been asked time and time again is, have you found a train carriage where people play cards or have a kind of traveling community? And it's it's really interesting that there's this sort of romanticized, romanticized idea that that on these on these longer distance trains, there are these little... Um, sort of fluffy communities of people that are really, um, you know, that, that would rather, um, that, that would kind of preserve this social arrangement. Um, so whilst I didn't find those, much to the distress of people I've talked to, at the same time, what I did get is so many situations where people are actually looking out for each other in all kinds of ways. There is there is so much, um, I suppose, kind of light touch interactions and responsibilities where people are looking out for each other, where people actually do know a lot about each other, but it might not be of the of the sort that's you know that, that we would like to translate into a you know documentary or soap opera. <laughs> it's funny because I mean, what you're talking before about uh, you know playing cards and sipping tea it sounds terribly old fashioned, but people didn't know how to commute back. You know, 150 years ago, when you know trains were hitting, when trains made commuting a thing. It's true. It's true. And and I draw, I talk in the book about this uh, this delightfully named publication, the Railway Traveller's Handy Book. Um, I think the the sub um, the subtitle is something like you know tips and hints for before the journey, during the journey, and after the journey, as if you'd need tips for after the journey to recompose yourself, possibly debrief with your partner. <laughs> that's that's my tip. Before it's underarm deodorant, during quiet on the phones. Absolutely. <laughs> but but I think if it tells us something really interesting about how all the things that we take for granted now about having to, uh, about social responsibilities and about, you know, the, the community is something that of course everyone can do. Uh, all of those things are things that we embody and they're, th- they're skills that we develop over time. Do you find commuting is accessible to all? In terms of... I'm actually thinking just general accessibility requirements. Mm. I mean, did you encounter that? It's a really good question, and in the in the later part of the book, I talk about, um, and this goes back to your point about the sorts of dis- pol- policy making, decision making practices. I talked to uh, to someone who is who is part of um, this group called the Sydney Alliance, and they they're advocating for um, for transport to be made more inclusive, um, public transport especially to be made more inclusive for a range of differently abled bodies. And one of the, their biggest frustrations that they shared with me is that so much money is pumped into these um, legacy um, grand schemes, such as the West Connects. Um, you know, we hear about the East West Link or the um, 
you know, the, the various kind of big infrastructure things in, in this city and, and in Sydney. But actually, what really would make so much difference to people are small incremental things like having step-free access to platforms, for example. Um, and the person I talked to about that um, was saying, you know, one of the frustrating things is that uh, are, are, is the opaqueness of the decision-making practices around um, which stations, for example, get chosen to be step-free. Uh, and often um, their suspicion and certainly hesitation around that was that uh, the sadly this is very often politically motivated. You know, we need to curry favour with a particular seat. That's where we'll put in the step-free access as opposed to where actually those people are living, for example. I, I live near Sky Rail in Melbourne, which was a total political beast. So, yeah, let's not go there. I'm, I'm, but mind you, in my head, I'm just shaking. My head is shaking because um, we, we argue over step-free uh, stations. I'm sorry, aren't they all step-free? In Sydney, they're really not. Absolutely. And, oh, God. Uh, I mean, even tram tram access here, it's it's great that there are, there are step-free trams, yeah. but... Um, when I catch the tram north and and it, and it says that um, Ligon Street, um, you know, this is the last accessible platform, it always makes me sort of take a deep in in breath and 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 think, really, wow, is that is that where we're at? Yeah. Um, how are people using their time commuting? What are people not doing? I think. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's the yeah, question. yeah. Is there anything they're not doing? <laughs> Um, with few exceptions, um, I think what was really fascinating from the people I talked to is that uh, is that people people are experimenting with their time, so they're not doing the same thing all the time. Um, one woman that I talked to said that she decided to change to public transport commuting so she could work because she was she wanted to get stuff done, and then she uh, she <laughs> sat on the bus the first day, yep. got her laptop out, and thought, oh God. I can't fit the laptop. Where, oh, where's the desk? Where's the desk? I feel I'm feeling. Oh, I'm feeling a little bit motion sick. Oh, and she said, oh, you know, from then on, she had to, you know, she had to do other things. But it was it was fascinating that you know that's what she wanted to do. And actually, a lot of the debates around um, autonomous vehicles, for example, are. Uh, are, are filled with this kind of productivist impulse. You know, if only we could use that half an hour to work, to do office-based stuff. And I sit there thinking, oh, well, for a start, is that actually really what this space should should be? You know, an, a, a, a kind of spread of of kind of work-based capitalist, you know, dare I say, um, uh, activity. You know, surely we should actually be, you know... Uh, almost revering that, that that you can't work sometimes in these places. Um, cards and cups of tea, come on. We already know what we want. <laughs> that's it, exactly. <laughs> Policy around cups of tea and cards, that's right. Yeah, sorry, I interrupted, but it's, it just brought me back to the reality of what we, what we really want. Um, so how do you hope that we can redesign these journeys to provide more positive experiences? What I mean, is it around the step-free platforms? Is it around providing opportunities for to connect with other passengers or to, you know, to be there for each other? Or what would you hope? It's a really tough question, actually, because I think one of the starting points of the project was my frustration around hearing politicians and councillors and the like uh, declaring what people want is dot, dot, dot. And, and of course, the diversity of stories in my book suggests that what people want is actually not only very, very different between people, but actually uh, changes over time. So suddenly that question of what people want becomes a lot more uh, uh, becomes a lot more complex. So I suppose first and foremost, what I hope, uh, what I hope the book does is that it actually, for readers, ra- raises questions for themselves about what their commute is doing to those, doing to them. So rather than it being something that we do um, semi-consciously, uh, rather than being a practice that we sort of begrudge and bemoan, uh, actually, hopefully, these stories might raise questions in terms of. Uh, it, 
experimenting with our own journeys, doing different things, for example. Um, you know, maybe it, maybe it takes uh, reading a book like this to really think, hang on a minute, this commute is really killing me and I need to do something about it. So first and foremost, it's, it's to commuters themselves. But also I, I think it's a, it's a wake-up call that there are so many different sites of responsibility. So yes, it is about, in, it's about transport companies. It's about governments investing in infrastructure. But it's also about having conversations with employers about whether, for example, the commute gets treated as work time. Um, is, uh, you know, is it, is it appropriate to be commuting in at peak hours? Could, could people uh, shift their commute to different times of day to make that make their commutes more bearable? So there's a whole set of conversations with employers about making this um, bit of our lives more bearable. So it's a really, there are many sites of responsibility, I guess is what I'm saying. So I alluded to that before when I was speaking about that long journey from, from the outer suburbs. I, I think it is a question about, you know, society, capitalism, Marxism, how I mean, I, I believe that some people are less privileged in their commute if they're two hours away and they're forced to be two hours away. Absolutely. I mean, it is, it's a site of real social difference. So, you know, put simply, for example, car drivers, people that are traveling in for, for longer are spending more on fuel. They're spending more on cars. They're, they're, they're disproportionately affected by their commute than, um, than people that live closer to their place of work. So for me, that raises that does raise an interesting question um, that strays into the domain of of really city planning, for example. So um, do we need where 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 should jobs be located? So you know if this is a, if this is a functional question about where people are located and where jobs are located, can we think more inventively about designing cities and thinking about trans um, creating uh, city futures that don't presume that all. Uh, jobs take place in the CBD, and 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 of course the 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 reality is, of course, they don't take place in, all in the CBD. Um, but certainly, uh, cities like Sydney are becoming a lot more attuned to uh, creating kind of multi-node cities. So the new thing about the um, airport out at Badger East Creek in the in the west of the city, they're using as a, an opportunity to um, create a, a whole new airport-focused city out there. So it will be Sydney's third centre as well as the CBD and Parramatta. So it's fascinating. Everyone from the North Shore is going to be moving there shortly. <laughs> So given the subtitle of the book is um, How Commuting is Transforming Our Cities, I have to ask, how is it transforming our cities? <laughs> I think my my slightly dull social science answer would, would be that it's transforming them in all kinds of complex ways that we can only begin to scratch the surface of. But I don't want to hear the word myriad or <laughs> intricately patterned or anything like that. I want some facts. <laughs> Damn these post-structuralists, exactly. Yeah. Um it's trans it's transforming who we are it's transforming how we relate to each other it's transforming our sense of who we are it's transforming our relationships to our workplaces and it's transforming what we want from our cities so it's actually um, by doing all those things it's forcing us to really grapple with um, questions those kind of big weighty existential questions that that make us who we are um, and I think that um if my book can can even can can just start to raise some of those points, I'll be I'll be a very happy person. The next time I jump on the tram on my way to work, what do you want me to think about? I want you to think about how this strange liminal time of day uh, can really work for you, and whether that is about doing using that time to do some work, or whether it's about using that time to work through maybe some 
existential crisis that you might be dealing with at the moment. I know <laughs> so many of my commutes seem to be seem to be of that flavour. Um, I think it's it's showing that even in the most constrained situation, there is always a bit of wiggle room. Listeners, if you see me with a furrowed brow on my next tram ride, you know I'm just thinking about my existence. Uh, David Bissell, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you to David Bissell, Associate Professor at the School of Geography, University of Melbourne. And thanks to our reporter, Steve Grimwade. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on August 21, 2018. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Audio engineering by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Dr. Andy Horvath and Sylvie Van Wall. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2018, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this podcast, drop us a review on iTunes and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.